Good morning, church. Great to see you guys. Good morning to all of you watching online, live right now. We're glad that you're with us. You know, just sitting here and worshiping with you guys, thinking through those lyrics, it is well with my soul. You know, how can we say it is well with my soul when there are times in our life when it's not well, right? When we've lost a loved one, we're going through a difficult, you know, crisis in our life, things things are challenging. How can we say it is well when things don't feel well? Well, only through a relationship with Christ, only through a hope that God gives can we do such a thing as say it is well when we're in the midst of grief and suffering and loss. You know, years ago, I lost my uncle to a tragic car accident. He was an electrician. He was 49 years old. He was driving home, and he rolled his truck and died. And uh, he had met my aunt when they were uh, teenagers. Uh, shortly after high school, they ended up getting together and getting married. And uh, they had a picture-perfect life. Now, I, I, I didn't see any evidence that they might have known Christ. And so that's a question mark for me. But they, they were great people and had a great life. And so my aunt took it very hard when my uncle died. And we went to the memorial service in the church, and we did the memorial service. And then we went to the graveside. And as we were burying my uncle, all of a sudden, and this image is burned into my mind, my typically classy and reserved aunt lost it. And as we're sitting there at the graveside, next thing I know, she's in, this, in her dress. She's kneeling in the dirt reaching into the holes we're lowering the casket, screaming, don't leave me, don't leave me, don't leave me. Man, never seen anything like that before. A few weeks later, there was a single mom in our church in California at the time uh, that absolutely loved the Lord, but she also experienced loss and tragedy. Her six-year-old son was playing in her front yard, And all of a sudden, a drunk driver came around the corner, popped the curb, and hit and killed her son right in her front yard. This happened within weeks after losing my uncle. And I watched this woman painfully grieve the loss of her son. Yet, there was this presence of hope and trust because she knew that her boy knew Jesus He had professed faith. She knew Jesus, and she knew what the outcome was going to be for eternity. And so even though she was grieving greatly, there was this hope. And I'll never forget, these events happened so short to one another. I saw this contrast. Uh, These people who were grieving with no hope and someone grieving with hope. Someone who uh, probably did not have a relationship with the Lord, but yet don't know for sure. And yet a person clearly who knew the Lord that had a visible hope that just impacted those around her in a visceral way. Just unfold before my eyes. When you grieve, how do you grieve? Do you grieve with hope? Or do you grieve without hope? Because until Jesus Christ returns, death is inevitable. Which means we will lose loved ones and we will grieve. So the question isn't, will we grieve? It's what kind of grief will we have? What kind of grief do you have when you lose loved ones? Because death confronts us all. It invades our life and reveals our true beliefs. What do I believe about God? What do I believe about heaven? What do I believe about hell? What do I believe about how a soul gets saved and gets right with God? What do I believe about eternity? All these things. Death is the revealer of our faith or lack of faith. Death is the revealer of hope or lack of hope. 
And so as we, encourage, uh, as we continue in this encouraged series, looking for the encouragement that God can give us through these words that God gave the Apostle Paul to this young group of Christians, we're going to continue through 1 Thessalonians today to see how God wants us to experience hope, even when we lose people we love. In fact, if we were to summarize what we're about to see today, it'd be this. It'd be no Jesus, no hope. No Jesus, no hope. And so we're going to crack open the Bible today and look for what the Lord has for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you've given us hope. Thank you that hope is real. And despite the fact that we will see death of loved ones, loss of life, Father, you've not left us to be hopeless. You've given us a hopeful grief or a supernatural way to process loss. We know that uh, death was not part of the original plan. Death was not the way you created things. Lord, we know through sin, death entered human rates. And until you come back, we're going to have to wrestle with loss and grief and sin. So, Father, help us today, wherever we're at in our own spiritual journey, to have a greater understanding of who you are and what you have for us through our time today. We ask in Jesus' name. We all sit together. Amen. Our approach today, as we're in the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, I invite you to turn there, is to really just progressively cruise through these six verses. We're going to just stop and unpack them a little bit at a time and springboard into a few support verses to help excavate uh, this hope that God has available for us. And I would say a lot of these principles are definitely in the context of death and loss, that kind of grief. But we know there's other kinds of grief we experience. There's grief that comes with other kinds of loss, right? Because loss means grief. So loss of a marriage, loss of a relationship, a loss of a job, loss of health. Um, all those kinds of things can produce grief. And so some of these things can apply on a broader level, but it will be very acute to the issue of loss through death. And so open up your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Let's start with verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have what? No hope. Let's just unpack some of the terminology here. Who's the we? Uh, this is written by the Apostle Paul who planted a church of believers, and he's probably referencing his ministry partners, Timothy and Titus and other believers, that, that these mature believers are trying to deliver a message. This is who the we um, are in this passage. The you. We do not want you to be uninformed. Who's the you? Uh, these are Thessalonian Christians. These are a group of young Christians in the city of Thessalonica in ancient Macedonia. This is a church plant. It's about a year old. And so they're new in their faith, but they're zealous in their faith. They're being faithful to the Lord. And he says here, we don't, we don't want you to be uninformed. Although these believers were faithfully following Christ and enduring persecution, they had questions and concerns about the believers that were dying in Thessalonica, a lot of them due to persecution. And so here they are, they're young Christians, they've been taught well, they know that Jesus Christ is returning, they know that they're to give the gospel to those around them, but as they're waiting for Christ to return due to persecution or illness or injury or whatever, uh, some of their Christian brothers and sisters are dying. And so they're asking themselves, well, are, are they not going to see the return of Christ? Are, are they not going to be resurrected? Like, we don't understand the timeline. How is this going to work? We've got questions, you know. This is what they're experiencing. And Paul wanted to answer these questions and correct any misunderstandings. 
and correct any deficiencies that they may have had and did so under the Holy Spirit's guidance and penned this letter to be sent to them. He didn't want them to be uninformed, to be ignorant, to be without understanding or knowledge about those who had fallen asleep. And this is a biblical euphemism for death, those who had died. And so he sees here and outlines here clearly that when it comes to grief, there will typically be two groups of people. One, there'll be those who grieve with hope. And these are identified as believers in Christ, followers of Christ. And there'll be those who grieve without hope. And these would be unbelievers who don't have the assurance of eternity. So again, simply put, no Jesus, no hope, no Jesus, no hope. He's laying that out very clearly. Now, clarifying point here, grief is not bad. God is not saying we shouldn't grieve when we have loss, right? Grief is a necessary part of our mourning process. If you remember Jesus, when he taught the Sermon on the Mount, we see it in Matthew 5, verse 4, he said, blessed are those who, what? Mourn, for they shall be comforted. God never says, don't mourn, don't mourn, don't mourn. He says, no, you're going to mourn, but you're going to be comforted. Well, what's one of the ways he's provided comfort? Hope. Hope in the midst of loss. And so loss is this universal human experience. Death is a great equalizer, but our faith in Christ or our absence of faith in Christ will determine what kind of grief we have in our loss. Hopeful grief or hopeless grief. And the Thessalonians as believers in Christ did not need to be hopeless when they saw their friends and their family members dying. Hope was available. How? How could they have hope? Look at verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Key phrase here. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, that's the foundation of our hope. Our belief in the death and resurrection of Jesus is our rock of hope. And it's increased and accelerated with our belief and anticipation in the future return of Christ. So why does this give us hope? How does that work? Well, the death and resurrection of Jesus on the cross was a fatal blow to death. Not only did Jesus conquer sin and atone for God's wrath that's justly aimed at us for our wickedness, but his resurrection from the grave was a declaration of victory over death. In fact, when we look at many verses that reference that, one of them, 2 Timothy 1.10, speaks of our Savior Christ Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The gospel is the good news. You don't know it's good news until you understand what the bad news is, right? So again, when God made us, death was not part of his perfect creation, but it entered through the rebellion of the first man and first woman, and the outcome of that first act of sin was an inherited sin nature that now we as creatures rightly deserve God's wrath because of our sinfulness. But the good news, the gospel, is that God rescued us from the penalty of that sin through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Because Jesus conquered death. He did something we could never do. A lot of our movies and books all have some sort of a plot about overcoming death or escaping death. Jesus conquered death. It's something we could never do on our own. And so Jesus suffered death for everyone so that all who believe in him will experience resurrection and life. So therefore, we are co-victors over death 
in Christ. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 54 and 55 says this, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, speaking about eternity, what's, what's after this life, right? And the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in, what word? Victory. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? And this is a quote from Hosea 13, uh, verse 14. And so we see that in Christ, when we who are in Christ uh, take this perishable body and receive the imperishable body, the mortal, mortal body, and receive the immortal body, death is conquered. It's being lived out. And so for those who know Jesus, death is not the end of the road. Death is just a turn in the road. It's a turn toward victory and eternity with Christ. And so we don't need to be morbid about death and welcome death. We just don't need to be afraid of it because Jesus has conquered it. And so we, as followers of Christ, start to see death with clear and correct spiritual vision. And part of that clear vision is not only based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but also the second coming of Jesus Christ. We see the first miraculous coming of Christ. We celebrate that at Christmas, right? When he came as an infant, and then he was raised, right? And then he died on a cross, rose from the grave. He ascended to heaven, and he promised to return. Let's visit one of the many moments in Scripture where the return of Christ is promised. And this is one of the most profound moments that's found in the book of Acts chapter 1. And this is after the resurrection of Christ. He's been appearing to the disciples in his resurrection body. And so they're thinking, this is it, man. Christ is going to set up his kingdom. And we look at verse 6. They said, so when they had come together, these disciples, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to what? No. Let's just get this straight. Nobody will know when the return of Christ will take place. There's a lot of people who have said, well, it's going to be here, it's going to be here, and I've read this, and I've studied that, and I've watched the Mayan calendar, and I've looked at this calendar. No one's going to know. It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed. Isn't that nice that it's fixed? The Lord's not sitting up there going, oh, I don't know when I'm going to do this. Uh, maybe today. He's like, no, it's fixed. There's a moment that God, we are moving toward this fixed moment by his own authority. Verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all the Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. What a beautiful moment. A lot of us have probably let balloons go, and you watch them until you can't see them anymore. This is what's happening. These guys are watching Christ ascend, going, whoa. And then there's these angels going, what are you looking at? Why, why, why do you keep your eyes on the sky? He's coming back. Now go do what he said. <laughs> He's coming back. He's coming back. And so Jesus was born. He died. He rose. He's coming again. But how does all that work? When will this happen? What will take place? What's the order of events? These are the kinds of questions that some of the Thessalonian Christians had and that we have. And so again, we don't know fully when Christ will return, but what can we learn about the return of Christ from these verses? Look at verses 15 through 17 with me. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, 
will not precede those who've fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. This is where we get to unpack a little bit of eschatology, the study of end times. What do we know from what we just read? Because there's a lot we don't know. But what do we know from just this little piece? What are some of the characteristics of Christ's coming? First, we see the Lord himself will come. He's not going to send someone in his proxy. There's going to be no one who volunteers for tribute, right? Christ is coming in person. He's going to be here in person. He's descending from heaven. We don't know exactly where heaven is, probably beyond the cosmos, beyond the universe, but this dwelling place of God, that's where Christ is now, reigning, living, supreme. And he's coming there, so he's going to descend from there, and there'll be a shout, a command from Christ. There's going to be a voice of an archangel who's announcing his coming. There's going to be a trumpet sound, which historically is a sound of declaration or announcement. And we don't know if this is you know, three descriptions of one sound or this is a progression or all three happen simultaneously. We don't have those details, but we do know this. It's going to be loud. Like some of you have been taught that Jesus is just going to kind of sneak onto the scene and like take the believers and sneak out. Is that what you see here? No, that's going to be unmistakable, undisputable return. Christ is coming. We also see here, those in Christ who have already passed away will receive resurrection bodies first and will lead the supernatural processional. And then those who are alive in Christ at the time of his return will be transformed into the resurrection bodies next and then join them. And at this point in time, all believers will always be with the Lord forevermore, permanence, eternal. So when will this happen? Now, very, God is very clear, no one's going to know. But there are two dominant views that tend to be put on the table. Uh, both these views have been brought by amazing biblical scholars. Both have a great case. We don't know which one is true. We, we know that they both revolve around what the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation talk about as a seven-year period called the tribulation. This is a seven-year period that's coming in the future that God is going to pour out his wrath on earth. And so what are these two main views? Well, I want to just try to describe those together with you here and try to illustrate that for a second. So if you look with me, well, what you will see here is basically we have a timeline and it goes on for eternity. And we see that one of the most significant parts of the timeline, the, the part that we're going to just pick up with right now, is the death of Christ. And so we know that Jesus died. And then and we see some other significant major points of timelines. There's going to be this seven-year period, right? So there's these seven years. And this is the tribulation. And then after the tribulation, there's going to be a thousand-year reign of Christ. And then it's going to go on for eternity. And so this is kind of your basic timeline. And so one of the views that we see out there is this view, that when Jesus ascended to heaven, he's going to come back before the tribulation. And believers are going to be caught up. We see this right here in this language here, caught up. And so uh, this moment that we're reading about in 1 Thessalonians in this view is happening right here. And at this point in time, then we will go back up with Christ. We will miss out on the seven years of wrath and tribulation and then come back. And then this is the second coming of Christ at this point. 
And then from there, we go through the millennium and into eternity. At this point in time, uh, there'll be uh, the, the great judgment uh, before eternity goes on. So this view, a lot of you know this, is called the pre-tribulational view, okay? The pre-tribulation, because the, this return that we're seeing is a rapturing of the church, a taking up, a catching up of the church before the tribulation. Uh, that's one view. The, uh, another view, that's the dom- another dominant view that's out there is this one. It says, no, Christ uh, ascended into heaven, and then he's coming back right after the tribulation, and this is the second coming here. And this moment in Thessalonians is going to happen here. And this catching up where, where believers are meeting him in the air, the language there is, is the same as if royalty is coming into a city, if a dignitary is coming to a city, you usually will see a group of delegates go out to meet the royalty. A group of delegates will meet up with the one they're awaiting for and then bring them into the city. And so that's what the language is here. At that point in time, there's the millennium, the judgment, and it goes into eternity. And of course, this view is the post-tribulation view. Okay? So a lot of you are thinking, great, love the views. Which one's right? Which one do we go with? And so I want to uh, propose to you today a view that I think you can uh, stick with. It's very solid. So it's official right here at CVC at uh, four, what is it, 10, 15 a.m. The view that's correct that I propose for you is the pro-tribulation uh, view. We're pro-tribulation because whether we go before or whether we go after, it's coming and we're going to be seeing Christ, all right? So we're pro-trip. <laughs> now, some of you are thinking, I've been studying theology. I've never seen that term. <laughs> Don't go looking in the books. You're not going to find pro-trib. It's just, a, it's just a playful way to say the tribulation is real. The return of Christ is real. We don't know the order of events, but it's going to happen. It's going to happen. And so uh, with confidence, we can take hope in the return of Christ. Now, we here at CVC like to say we major on the majors, we minor on the minors. Some of you want to draw swords over the pre-trib, post-trib. There's a little mid-trib view. You know what? Those are the minor details. We can't be dogmatic about those things. The major, Christ is coming back. Amen? Christ is coming. And so we can uh, uh, focus on that. And, And Paul's emphasis here is not prophecy. Paul's not trying to excavate all these details about end times. So his emphasis is not prophecy, it's security. It's the hope that we have. And so he's focusing on how the resurrection of Christ and the future return of Christ gives us supernatural hope when a believer in Christ passes from this life to the next. But here's the golden question. Here's what a lot of us are wondering about. What, if, what about the person who I care about who dies, but I don't know if they know the Lord? Or even worse, I feel pretty confident that maybe they didn't because of what they said and did in their life. What do I do then? How do I find hope then when the person may not be a believer? Because this can feel like a double loss, right? We lost them here on earth, and we lost them for eternity. Double loss, double grief. So how can we find hope? Well, First thing I would say is let's not try to comfort ourselves with false hope. This is where we see it all the time. When you lose someone you love, you don't know where they are spiritually, you try to comfort yourself with statements and phrases that may not be true. And we start to let our emotions dictate theology. And all of a sudden we'll say, well, you know what? Um, I just know that they're in a better place. 
Maybe they are. Maybe they're not. Well, I just know their suffering is over. Perhaps it is. Perhaps not. Well, I know I'm going to see him again. Maybe you will. Maybe you won't. And so we, we can't find ourselves with false comfort. Uh, people have asked me, so when you're like doing a service or when people ask you about a loved one who doesn't know the Lord, what do you typically say? I say, they're in God's hands. They're in God's hands. That could be a real good thing or that could be not such a good thing if they don't know the Lord. And so we, we get like, well, what should we say in those moments? Because those statements about better place, done suffering, we'll see them again. Those are true for followers of Christ going to be with the Lord in eternity, resurrection bodies, all this stuff. But if you don't know Christ, the opposite is true. You might actually uh, spend eternity in a worse place, eternally suffering, never to be seen by us again. And so we have to be careful what we say. We can say things like, I'm sorry for your loss. We're carrying you in our hearts right now. We're hoping and trusting in the Lord right now with you. What's more important than our words in those moments? Just our acts of care. They just, you know, when the service is over and the loneliness kicks in, that's when the believers of Christ should shine, amen? You show up and love on people and serve them and care for them and give them meals and give them our company and acts of kindness. But how can we find hope when there isn't a clear testimony of knowing Christ? Here's how. We keep our focus on trusting God's character. So we know that God is good and we know that God is just and God does not do anything that, will not, that we will not ultimately understand and approve. You know, from Genesis 18.25, there's this verse that says, Will not the judge of all the earth do what is just? So we can be comforted because God will always do what is right and just. He is a God on whom there is no injustice. And so we have comfort by being reminded that uh, even though we might grieve, we can trust the Lord to do what's right in regards to our loved ones who have died. There's no injustice with God. Maybe delayed justice, but not injustice. And so we need to move to the point where, by grace, we realize that one day God will give us the emotional wherewithal to see the justice in all of his actions, even if that means the eternal loss of our loved ones. That God is good and that God is just. I don't want a God who changes the rules all the time, right? It's better to know that God says, this is the way it is, and you just have to accept it and live with it, than a God who says, well, I'm going to grade on a curve this time. Well, I'm going to make an exception. No, he's given us all we need to know, and now we need to live and operate in faith by that, and that does bring comfort. The other reason we can have comfort in this moment when we lose loved ones who don't know the Lord, or we don't know if they know the Lord, is that God alone knows the heart. God alone knows the heart. You know, in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 39, it says, Then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each whose heart you know, according to all his ways. For you, you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind. Hope can be found in the absolute trust of God and his character and that he's loving and just and knows the hearts of people. And so we ultimately don't know the heart of people. We don't know their eternal security. Uh, we don't know what they've done with the Lord's invitation to believe, especially in some of their final hours. Again, I have no basis to know whether my aunt or uncle knew the Lord. None. But here's what I hope in. I hope that at some point, maybe my uncle made a decision I just have no idea about. 
Did he profess faith in Christ? He accepted the Lord's invitation in Christ? I just don't know about it. And so I, I have hope in that. I also have hope that my God's going to do what's good and just, whether I like it or not, or whether it feels good or not, that he's good and he's just and he's unchanging. I also have this hope. Because although I can't do anything for my loved ones who've passed on, I still can do something about the ones who are alive. What do you think God would rather you do? Get stuck in emotional pain over the ones who've passed? Or to convert your energy to sharing the gospel to the ones who still have a chance? Where does God want you to spend your energy and your effort? So if we were to look at this and say, man, no Jesus, no peace, no Jesus, no peace, then we can, we're going to grieve with a hope or we're going to grieve without a hope. In fact, if we were to kind of take what we've talked about so far and put them side by side, here's what we're seeing. Those without hope, man, there's spiritual confusion, but those with hope, there's spiritual clarity. Without hope, the future's unknown. With hope, there's an assurance of eternity. Without hope, death is a threatening bully. But with hope, death is a defeated enemy. Without hope, you're going to curse God. You curse God for loss. But with hope, you bless God. You trust God. You worship God. Without hope, grief will overwhelm hope. But with hope, hope overwhelms grief. Without hope, the return of Christ will be a surprise. But with hope, the return of Christ is anticipated. So different. If you were to put yourself on one of those sides, which side best describes where you're at? How about your loved ones, your spouse, your children, your family members, your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers? Well, why did God give us all these verses? He's given us a reason right here in verse 18. Therefore, what? Encourage one another. Encourage one another with these words. It's for our encouragement to give us hope in life, to give us hope in death. When I lose someone, my grief is real, but it's not hopeless. I hurt, but I hope. Grief is real, absence is real, but it can be tempered by knowing that your loved one, if they knew Christ, is only experiencing a temporary separation from you. And then when we overlay our understanding of the resurrection, then we know there's more to come. In fact, is there not only more to come after this life, the best is yet to come. I love what uh, a well-known preacher and evangelist from the mid-1800s, D.L. Moody, said. He said, as I go into a cemetery, I like to think of the time when the dead shall rise from their graves. Thank God our friends are not buried, they're only sown. See, that, that's an expression of hope. See, there's no hope when we bury a loved one, they're buried. But if they know Christ, it's like a seed, it's sown. You guys have all seen those moments. You've been kids or you have kids or grandkids that when you, when you do the little cup with the dirt thing and you put the seed in there, you put the seed in there knowing it's going to come out and it's going to be sown, sown, it's sown a seed, it's going to spring up something else, right? And, and just like a kid checks every five minutes, you know, is, is anything grown yet? Is anything grown yet? Waiting for something to spring up. When a believer is put in the ground, it's a seed that's going to spring up at one point. And we're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting for the return of Christ for that moment. So it's not a burial, it's a sowing. And the resurrection of Jesus models our future resurrection. It's a precursor. Like a seed sown, we're waiting for the sprouting of what God has planned. Now, as we've picked apart these verses, I want to look at them one more time and put them together. And put the framework that you just saw through this. No Jesus, no peace. No Jesus, no peace. Look again at verses 13 through 18 with me. But 
We do not want you to be unformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. This isn't Paul's opinion, right? That we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. You guys want to know the future? You just saw it. Is there anything more encouraging than knowing Christ? And knowing your eternity is secure in Christ. And the hope that comes with knowing the eternity of your loved ones are secure in Christ. So I hope you are encouraged today. I hope that all, you, all of you know Christ and the people you care about know Christ. I hope today that's made clear to you to know Christ is to know hope. And know Christ means no hope. In application, I just basically want to ask you three questions. I think there's three questions we need to come up with answers for as we try to apply what we just saw. The first question is this, do I know Christ? If you're watching a line or you're here in this room, do you know Christ? This God who made you and loves you and wants to spend forever with you, do you know him? Do you have that assurance? If not, you can. You've heard bits and pieces today of, of our sinfulness that separates us and how God resolved that through the death and resurrection, but it's not an automatic thing. You've got to place your faith and trust in him. Just like you sat down in that chair and that was an act of trust in that chair to hold you, when you said, I believe that Jesus died and rose and is coming and that I'm a sinner who needs him, you're placing your trust and faith in Christ, not in good works, not in religion, not in church, but in Jesus. So if you don't know Jesus today, God's inviting you to believe. And all you have to do is tell him you believe. At any point in time, you can say, Lord, I believe. I believe I'm a sinner. I believe I need you. I believe you died, rose, and are coming. And I'm placing my faith today. I'm taking my first step. If you do that, please let us know so we can help you grow in your relationship with Christ, your hope that's in Christ. And so in your program, there's a response card. Just mark that. I'm coming to Christ. Turn it in in the baskets so we can get in touch with you and tell you how to grow. If you're watching online, you can email us at connect at cvconline.org and say, I need Christ, and we'll get in touch with you. So the first question, do I know Christ? The second question is this. If I know Christ, have I clearly communicated that to my family and friends so that they can live on with hope if I die before Christ returns? Look, you're leaving this rock one of two ways. Jesus comes to get you or you die before he comes back. It's going to happen. Here's the thing. For years, people used to say, well, your, your faith is a private thing. Your relationship with God is a private thing. No, it's not. Your relationship with God is very public. It's probably more public than you even realize because your life is your testimony. And so Jesus didn't die in private. He died in public. He didn't go sneak off in a corner and race from the grave. He rose and then showed himself off for 40 days before he ascended. Our faith is not private, it's public. And some of you need to be more public about your faith to those you live by and are in your home that you work with. Because do you want your kids, grandkids, neighbors, friends, that if you die, go, I wonder what happened to that person. Some of you need to sit down with your kids and grandkids and family and friends and neighbors and at some point in time when it feels appropriate to go, I need you to know something. If I die, I'm with Jesus. 
is I love Jesus. He's my savior. He defeated death on my behalf. And I love the Lord. Don't you worry about me. Don't you cry for me because I'm with the Lord. Man, you got to make that very known to those who know you. So first question, do I know the Lord? Second question, have you communicated that? Third one is, do the people I care about know Christ? When we talk about topics like this, there should be an urgency that rises up in us to say, I know family, I know friends who don't know the Lord. They don't have this hope I'm talking about. And if Christ comes today, they're not going to spend eternity with them. If they were to die today, they're not going to spend eternity with them. So what am I doing about it? Like we can do and say what we want, but here's the bottom line. If we don't share the gospel, if we don't share, we don't care. If we don't share, we don't care. I know there's fear. I know there's worry. I know there's awkwardness. But here's the bottom line. When we don't open our mouth and tell people about this amazing God who loves them and died for them, if we don't share that, we don't care. This is basically what we're saying. You're going to hell, but I don't care. It's inconvenient to talk to you. It's uncomfortable to talk to you. So I'm not going to do anything about it. Good luck. That's what we're saying. We don't share we don't care. And so do you know Christ? Do the people that know you and love you know that you know Christ? And do the people that you care about that don't know Christ, are they hearing about the good news from you? Because there's a hope that God has for us. There's an encouragement that he has for us. And we're responsible to tell others. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for hope. Thank you for a future. Thank you that the best is yet to come. Father, thank you for the beauty of this world. Thank you for the joys and the gifts of this world. Lord, this is just a sampling. It's like Costco, just a little taste test. Just a sampling, Lord, of all that you have waiting for us. What a great hope you've given us. Father, for those in this room, those watching who don't know you, may today they joyfully surrender to you and invite you into their life. God, may you have them courageously tell us so we can help them grow. Father, for those of us who've been too quiet, about our relationship with you, God, open our mouths. Let us tell those who love us that we know you. Let us tell those who don't know you about you. And Father, take these gifts we're about to receive. Multiply them so that we can take this message of hope to encourage people in Northeast Ohio and all around the world. That's our prayer. In Jesus' name, we all said.